0: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: This is Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan, And here's a flashback relevant to the topic we're taking on today. About 75 years ago, American universities went through what was considered a very bad patch in terms of academic freedom. It was the early days of the Cold War There was a hunt on for communists in the United States to expose them and oust them from positions of influence. And in the arena of higher education, this led to requiring faculty and aspiring faculty to sign what were called loyalty oaths. These were documents in which they would forswear any association with the Communist Party, past or future, and also pledge allegiance to the Constitution and the United States. Take the oath or lose your job. That was the deal. Well, today we are hearing accusations that loyalty oaths are making a comeback, but communism is not part of this conversation. Instead, it is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, a trio of goals that are framed as a way to create more supportive campus environments for those who come from groups seen as previously marginalized by American academia. To move toward this goal, hiring practices at a growing number of colleges and universities is said to be about 20% of schools right now. Are requiring job applicants to complete what is called a DEI statement where they are asked to detail the ways in which in the past and in the future they plan to exercise DEI values in educating students and teaching and mentoring them. It is the mandate part that is causing the most controversy, the fact that this is required, but it's also the fact that some regard DEI as fulfilling a political agenda, which circles back to the idea that DEI mandates corrode academic freedom. But is that really a fair picture of how these mandates work? Are they, in fact, functionally political litmus tests with effects not unlike those of the old loyalty oaths? Or is their harm, actual and potential, being distorted and overstated? And can one support the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but be opposed to mandating that commitment in good faith? All this is what we're taking on when we go open to debate on this question, are DEI mandates for university faculties a bad idea? Let's get into it and meet our debaters. Answering yes to that question, we have Randall Kennedy. Randall teaches at Harvard Law School. He's one of the foremost legal thinkers on the intersection of race and the law. He's written several books. His most recent, a series of essays titled Say It Loud. He's also a previous debater with us, so I'm happy to say welcome back, Randall Kennedy. It's great to have you.
2: Thank you very much.
1: And answering no to the same question, are DEI mandates for university faculties a bad idea? We have Brian Sochek, who is a law professor at the University of California, Davis, where his focus is gender, constitutional, and anti-discrimination law. He has researched and written about the legal questions that surround diversity, equity, and inclusion statement mandates. And he also helped to shape the UC system's guidelines for these statements. Brian, it's such a great pleasure to have you on Open to Debate. Uh, I'm honored to be here with you and Randall. So um, before we get started, I would just wanted to get a sense from each of you about why this topic even matters to you, for example, why would you take part in a debate on this issue? And Brian, uh, why don't you go first? And I I note that both of you come out of academia, so this is to some degree close to home for each of you.
3: Sure, I actually came to this as a defender of academic freedom. Uh, Five years or so ago, I was chairing the Faculty Academic Freedom Committee at UC Davis, where I teach, and then ended up chairing the system-wide committee for all 10 of the University of California's campuses at a time when UC was expanding its use of DEI statements and criticism of our use of them was really blowing up. So I felt like it was my job to try to understand to what extent the critics were getting it right, uh, especially from a legal perspective. I ended up researching it. I ended up submitting dozens of Public Records Act requests, getting hundreds of pages of records from my own university about our DEI programs. And eventually I started to decide that the critics' worries were absolutely real, but that they were avoidable. So that's where I come to this from. I'm a All defender right. of diversity statements, but only as long as they're done the right way.
1: All right. That gives us great context to know where you're coming from. And, and Randall Kennedy, same question to you. Um, again, as I mentioned before, it's your second time debating with us, but it's been a while. We're glad to have you back in on this topic. But why this topic? Why did it pique your interest?
2: This topic uh, is very important to me because I'm an academic. I've spent the last 39 years in an institution of higher education, and this uh, this device that we're talking about is uh, quite crucial insofar as people, uh, as it's a device that affects uh, who's hired and who's promoted. Um, I'm also a student of race relations. I'm also a student of controversies involving freedom of expression. So this topic really hits me in a lot of different ways, and I'm very glad to be here. Thank you.
1: We can see how it matters to both of you. So thank you for that, and let's get on to our opening statements. We want to give each of you a few minutes to explain your answer to the question yes or no. And Randall, once again, the question is, are DEI mandates for university faculties a bad idea? You're saying yes. Please tell us why.
2: Yes, they are a bad idea. They are a very bad idea. Remember, these are mandated statements Uh, that are put to people who are seeking to enter um, uh, institutions of higher education as professors or they are seeking promotion based on their work. What DEI statements are, they are pledges of allegiance. What's happening is that uh, institutions are asking people to pledge allegiance to the DEI uh, agenda Uh, They are basically saying to people, listen, check a box, tell us what we want to hear, and if you do that, you have a chance of getting hired or you have a chance of getting promoted. Uh, It seems to me that uh, this device, uh, this procedure, is going to have all sorts of bad consequences in higher education. For people who really don't care a whole lot, it's going to lead to bad faith. It's going to lead to cynicism. It's going to lead to people just saying what they think people want to hear. Uh, for people who are more who are earnest and might say, well, you know, frankly, I have some problems with the DEI project. It's going to lead to the exclusion of such people. It's going to lead to resentment. Um, and it's going to lead to something else. It's going to lead to imitation. After all, we're talking about uh, mandates requiring people to, you know, say, well, what do you think of uh, DEI and how will you use it? How will you advance it in your scholarship? Let's imagine a somewhat different uh, slogan. Let's imagine the slogan, uh, uh, making America great again. So let's imagine that we have institutions of higher education that ask people, well, uh, how do you plan to make America great again? How do you plan to uh, 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 use this slogan uh, in the advancement of your research or in the advancement of your teaching? I think that people would react very much against that, at least I hope they would. I hope that they would see the coercive power of making people bow to that sort of um, uh, 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 request. And I hope that people will see the coercive power of these uh, mandatory uh, DEI statements.
1: Thanks very much, Randall Kennedy. And now uh, we have a response in the form of the question being answered no by Brian Sochik. Brian, it's your turn. Why are you a no on this question?
3: Well, if the question is, are diversity statements a bad idea, I'd say they're a bad idea if they're done badly. They can be really valuable if they're done well. Most of my work has been devoted to figuring out that difference. Uh, And that's what I hope we'll be able to talk about here. It's important first, though, I think, to step back and ask, why did schools like mine start asking about faculty contributions to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the first place? There have been some recent articles in the press that make it sound as if we've done this just as a way to hire more Black and Hispanic professors in a state like mine that bans affirmative action. And I think that's actually wrong, or at least uh, woefully incomplete. At UC, the story actually goes back more than two decades. There have always been faculty at UC and everywhere else who do extra work to try to ensure that a diverse set of students are flourishing under their teaching and mentorship or to ensure that the interests of a population as diverse as California are being served by the research that we're putting out. And so back in 2002, the president of our university and the faculty senate started talking about how we could encourage and reward faculty members who were doing that kind of work. Our regents, along with the faculty, had declared that diversity was, quote, integral to the university's achievement of excellence. And if that's part of how we define excellence, if that's part of what it means to do your job well, to uh, you know have academic merit, then it seems like we should be crediting DEI contributions when they're occurring, whether that's in tenure or promotion decisions uh, or in hiring. And then if something's going to be credited, we shouldn't hide the ball about it. We should just make it clear and give faculty and faculty candidates the opportunity to say what it is that they've done in this area. So that's why I think that uh, these are at least potentially a very good thing. The question then is how we realize that uh, potential. We've been using diversity statements at UC since 2009 when UC San Diego used them for the first time. And I think we've learned a lot about them in that time. Uh, One of the things I hope we've come to see is that diversity statements can be a lot like the other statements that we already force faculty to submit. Just like research or teaching statements, they can be done in more or less useful ways. So when I was chairing our Academic Freedom Committee, we added two requirements that I think are crucial. First, ask only what people have done and plan to do regarding DEI, not about what they believe. And this is just like teaching statements. No one asks me if, my, if I think teaching is the best thing in the world or if it's my favorite part of the job. I might actually think that we teach way too much and that it gets in the way of my research, and I might write op-eds on that. That's all fine. But in my teaching statement, the thing I'm compelled to submit, I'm asked to talk about what I've done as a teacher to help my students learn. And I'm asked what I'm planning to do to make my classes better going forward. So that's the first thing, actions, not beliefs. The second is, I think we should be deciding bottom-up, not top-down, what a good diversity statement looks like within a given field. That's how peer review generally works when we're hiring or tenuring. No one thinks good teaching or research is going to look the same in biology as it does in theater or in law. So the point is, let experts within a field think about what their field's DEI needs or gaps are let them evaluate then whatever steps faculty or faculty candidates have taken to address those needs. There's just not one right answer when it comes to how a diversity statement should be answered.
1: All right. Thanks very much, Brian. And actually, thanks to both of you. We have now heard your opening statements and have the outlines of your argument. And we're going to take a break. And when we return, we will dive into where the disagreement exists and potentially find out where you might overlap. But we're going to start where the argument is. I'm John Donvan. This is Open to Debate. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. We are debating the question, are DEI mandates for university faculties a bad idea? We have heard opening statements from Randall Kennedy and Brian Socek, and just to get... A little bit of a look back at the arguments that they have made. Randall, in saying that, yes, they're a bad idea, he feels dangerously they are pledges of allegiance to support an agenda and that they are tied to promotion. He feels that this has consequences. The consequences include either cynicism or resentment. In the long run, he says that there's a coercive power to these things, and it's it's that coercive nature which he finds most corrosive and concerning. Brian Socek arguing, no, uh, they're not a bad idea. He says they can be done badly, but they can also be done well. He makes it clear that there's no one-size-fits-all for any of these things, that that might have been a mistake that sometimes has been made. But he says that just as there are other kinds of statements required of job applicants, why not this kind of statement as well when it is relevant to the work that is being done? Randall, I want, I want to ask you to take on Brian's point that we're already in a world where, as he said, Applicants for jobs have to make certain kinds of statements. They are required. And that this should not be
2: considered as really very different in that way. Two things. Number one, do note that in uh, Brian's remarks, he talked about people being rewarded for doing DEI work. But, of course, what we are debating is mandated DEI statements. That's point one. Point two, on the issue of um, what's wrong with this, as opposed to other sorts of statements. Other sorts of statements go directly to the expertise of the uh, person that is being considered. They're asked about what they do. Here, they're not being asked about what they do. Here, they're asked whether they basically sign on to a view. And third of all, What happens to the person who says, by the way, actually, I don't agree with uh, the whole DEI project. Is there any room for such a person? It seems to me that in academia, there should be room for people who say, actually, I fundamentally disagree with the way in which uh, this institution or other institutions of higher education are managing people. Again, the university should be open, it should facilitate candor, it should facilitate diversity. All of those values are threatened by mandated DEI statements.
1: So, Brian, essentially what I think I hear Randall saying that pins together everything he said is he does not feel that a commitment to a a DEI program or initiative is central to the job of an educator, certainly not in places like chemistry, and physics, and therefore, It's not the same as everything else. Can you take that on?
3: There absolutely needs to be space for somebody to say, without hypocrisy, that they disagree with the use of DEI statements, or maybe even that they disagree with the entire DEI emphasis within the university entirely.
1: Would that be uh,
3: a very big strike against the individual? It shouldn't be. And if a school is treating it that, then I'm going to join hands with Randall and, if not march on them, write a very strongly worded letter about it, because that is not how academic freedom works. I think it's question begging to say that this, that DEI contributions don't go to the expertise or the academic merit of somebody being considered either for hiring or for tenure or promotion. I think that for me, especially at a public school like mine, to ensure that a diverse set of students are flourishing under my watch, under my teaching and mentorship, I think that is core to what it means to succeed as a teacher at the University of California. I think if my research is reaching some part of our diverse population that perhaps hasn't had its needs and interests met in UC's past research, then that's a contribution. That's a form of academic merit. That's a way that I'm serving the university's mission. So I just don't see this as extraneous in a way that, say, a pledge to make America great again uh, would be. So,
1: Randall, do you see DEI... And I know that that's a broadly, squishily defined term, but maybe you can work with this question. Do you see it as, as essentially representing an ideological agenda?
2: Yes, and by the way, it is very squishy. It is very amorphous. Of course, that's part of the that's part of the problem. I am all in favor of institutions taking action against any sort of wrongful, discriminatory conduct. But that's a very different thing than monitoring beliefs by demanding pledges of allegiance to an array of policies that are often vague, frequently ambiguous, and invariably controversial.
1: But Brian is arguing that it's not; an, it's, they're not seeking to know the belief; they're seeking to know the action, past and future, and that he says that's an important distinction.
2: Well, that's a distinction on paper. I'm saying let's let's take a look at the reality of how these things work. On the ground, and I take solace, by the way, from uh, Brian's concession. He said, "If what I'm saying is true, then he would join me." Well, I feel very certain that what I'm saying is true, as a as a matter of reality on our campuses. We have we we know what's going to happen if somebody submits a a uh, a statement in which they say, or even if even if they even hint that they have skepticism towards certain aspects of the DEI regime. We know what's going to happen to them.
3: Uh, You know, on the one hand, it seems as if there's some orthodoxy that everybody is supposed to pledge allegiance to. On the other hand, it's being said to be so vague and squishy that nobody knows what it is. I think the squishiness is, in a way, a, a virtue. I mean, I think that is another way in which DEI statements are analogous to the rest of the things that we judge people on. I don't know why Harvard Law School didn't hire me when I was on the job market. There was discretion on the part of the hirers and we're used to that. And the way that we the reason for that is because we don't want the university top down to be dictating who Harvard Law School should hire. We want the disciplinary experts at that school in that field to be deciding what would be the biggest contribution. That's what academic freedom means that you're judged by your academic peers, not by administrators or, you know, some outside concern.
2: Brian is telling us Brian's story is that these d e i mandated statements are informational. I am rejecting that. I don't think that that's actually the case. I don't think that they are merely informational. I think that they are signals. They are signals telling applicants that they better say certain things or shut up about their beliefs. Now, uh, the, the, the claim that these things are informational, it seems to me, is unrealistic. As for the as for the issue of academic freedom, I agree with you entirely Brian that it should be people on the ground, peers, academic peers who make these determinations. But where do DEI statements come from? They don't come from peers. They come from the top. They come from administrators who have imposed this on faculty and by extension on students. Well, two very quick things. One, as
3: a descriptive matter, that may be true in any number of places. It's not true, as I just described, at the University of California. But more importantly, secondly, we can make it not be true.
1: Brian, I I have before me, thanks to our research team, a rubric that um, is dated 2018, UC Berkeley.
3: Oh, the Berkeley rubric.
1: Is this out of date? Is this has this is this in practice or before I go to it? Would that it were not? Uh All right. that thing so I has wanna, a like. I want to talk about it because I, I, I think it goes to some of the issues we're talking about. And so what this is is a score sheet. Uh, it's a guide to how to score an applicant for a job in the area of DEI. There's the, the category of how much does this person know about DEI? And they get one to two points if they have expressed, I'm quoting a little expressed knowledge of or experience with dimensions of diversity that result from different identities. And then the top score in this category of knowledge of DEI, you get four to five points. Clear knowledge about, you know, a person who has a far more sophisticated grasp of what uh, the DEI mission is. There are three or four categories that have this, this point system from one to five. A one is weak, on DEI and five is very strong on DEI. What is what
3: is going on here and why do, why did you groan right away when you heard it? As you said, that was a 2018 rubric that came top down at Berkeley. It's not what you find when you go even to the top at Berkeley and look at their DEI uh, office and their official recommendations about, about diversity statements. It has, for whatever reason, had a life of its own where you see it cropping up at other schools as a model. And I wish that weren't the case because that's not how I think these should be done. And I think it's important and actually salutary that that's not how our system now recommends doing it. When I'm saying to Randall, even if he were right to some extent about the descriptive story, that's not static. There's no reason why we can't... uh, do things better. You know, if you don't want pledges of allegiance, don't ask people to pledge allegiance. Ask them about their actual experiences. Ask them how they're changing their syllabus to make it more inclusive. Ask those kinds of things. So, so Randall, again, Brian is saying there's all kinds of room for nuance here, that these things can
1: be fine-tuned to be far less, far less offensive to academic freedom than you're saying. And I just want to ask you to take on that point that he says there's there's a way to to massage these things so that they're not as uh, egregious in the sense that you find it egregious and may actually do some good?
2: I can imagine that you could have this device and it would be less offensive to academic freedom. That's not good enough for me. I don't want to have any device that's going to encroach upon academic freedom at all. Uh, we were just talking about a great university, Berkeley, and he conceded that that was a terrible DEI statement. This has gone to other places. He's conceded that this is at least a potential threat. What I'm saying is, let's get rid of potential threats to academic freedom, to candor, uh, to free thinking and free learning in America's universities.
3: The problem is that the argument you're making, Randall, just proves way too much because every element of the application can be used in bad ways. I don't understand why so many of the critics of diversity statements aren't out there criticizing all parts of the- Why aren't they out there You know, talking about teaching statements, for example.
1: Let let me point back, though, to the question that Randall just put before you is, what is the evidence that these statements are doing good?
3: That's an important question. Uh, I've read a lot. I was chair of our appointments committee last year, read hundreds of them. It's actually inspiring to see what people put in their diversity statements. When they talk about ways that they have identified shortcomings in their teaching, for example, when they realize that the readings that they're assigning – basically out of, not out of ill will, but just out of inertia, that they haven't diversified the set of examples they're using, the type of cases they're assigning. Because they have this nudge, they know that they're going to be asked about it. Does it force them to do any particular intervention? No. Does it push them to be thoughtful about whether they're reaching a diverse set of students and whether they're taking DEI values into account when they think about how they want to teach their class? Yeah, I really think it does that.
2: I think of myself as a person being in favor of racial justice, militantly in favor of racial justice. I would absolutely if I applied to some place now and they ask me the sorts of things that are that people are being asked at the entry level and for purposes of promotion, I would on principle reject answering I think that this is a major violation. It is coercion in soft gloves. That's what we are facing here.
1: So, Brian, take take on the, the mandate piece of this. Why should it be mandatory?
3: I don't think the mandatory nature of it actually plays much a role
1: at all. So, but that, but that's, but that's the main. That's the main uh, point of uh, of offense that's taken by the other side. Well, perhaps I. But hear me out. But it's not if, perhaps. I, I have to push you on that. That's that's why there's a debate here. I think is primarily because of the requirement, and it's it's the heart of Randall's
3: argument. So tell me what the difference is between saying in your mandatory statement saying zero contributions during, this, during the review period, as some might say if they didn't publish anything during that, during that period, versus having an optional statement that they just don't file, that they decide not to submit. It seems to me that if what the school is doing is looking for such contributions, that, as I said at the opening, we shouldn't hide the ball
2: about that. There's a reason for it being mandatory. It's part of the signaling process. It's mandatory because what the institutions are saying is um, either play ball with us with respect to this or don't expect to get hired or don't expect to be promoted. The, The mandatory aspect of this is absolutely essential. And again, I repeat, the DEI required statement nominally, it's informational. That's not what is really going on. Realistically, it is about uh, a a test, a pledge of allegiance, and we're testing you to make sure that you'll play ball with us.
3: If the problem is that universities are signaling that they care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I, that ship has sailed. The University of California made that part of our core mission explicitly in 2006. So if that is something that the university sees as, quote, intrinsic to its excellence, then of course we're signaling that we want things that contribute to how we define excellence.
2: Uh-huh. You have just now pointed out how deep a problem this is. Because what you've just said is, well, you know, the university administrators have said that this is it was very by the faculty,
3: Randall, that came through shared governance, five years of shared governance with the faculty.
2: I'm willing to stipulate that that's so. If that is so, then the faculty is complicit in a regime that is um, endemical to the values that institutions of higher education should support.
1: I want to bring in one other topic, and that refers to the situation in California, which um, especially you know well, Brian, where under Proposition 209, uh, preferential treatment in hiring and college admissions that is based on race and gender and sex has been barred for quite some time now. And we're hearing some people argue that DEI statements are are a way to sidestep that, that prohibition on u- using uh, race, gender, sex, Uh, to make any sort of decision about an applicant's qualifications
3: for a position. Is this a way around Prop 209? Well, no. The Supreme Court has told us that we can't make explicit use of people's race unless we first tried out other non-racial alternatives, race-neutral alternatives. A student can talk about their race when they're applying. They just have to do so in a way that shows how their racial background has made them given them some kind of trait or experience or background that will allow them to contribute in a unique way at Harvard. And again, done the right way, that's what we should be asking people in their diversity statements.
2: Unfortunately, and this goes to your very first question, John, you know, why does this matter to me? The reputation of higher education, its esteem in the public Mind matters tremendously to me, and the esteem of public education has fallen because of the perception, all too often the realistic perception, that there is a good amount of double talk going on in universities. What we're talking about now is a classic illustration of that, Uh, We have, you know, we have these DEI policies that are presented as a, you know, an an innocuous way of getting information aimed at advancing the educational uh, 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 program at a university when in actuality, that's really not what's going on. And, you know... People are going to people are going to understand this uh, over time. I think people are already understanding it, and it's going to lead to the further undermining of confidence in our colleges and universities.
1: Okay, we are in mid flow in this conversation and we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to bring in some additional voices to see what directions the conversation goes in with their contributions. I'm John Donvan. This is Open to Debate. Welcome back to Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. I'm joined by Randall Kennedy and Brian Sochik to debate this question. Are DEI mandates for university faculties a bad idea? And what we like to do at this point in the program is bring in some journalists who have been thinking and writing about these questions and can bring us some insights in the way they put a question to each of our debaters. And joining us first is Sarah Iskar, who is a senior editor at The Dispatch and host of the podcast, Advisory Opinions. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for joining us on Open to Debate.
4: Thank you so much for having me. The E in DEI stands for the word equity, which uh, itself, as I understand it, is largely defined as looking at outcomes rather than at opportunity, which is something that a lot of conservatives reject. Uh, So the very concept of DEI is something that is sort of offensive to their uh, ideological philosophy. At the same time, we've seen a real problem in academia, either attracting or hiring conservative viewpoints on campus. So my question to you is, are schools missing out on viewpoint diversity? And if so, how would you suggest that they fix that conservative side of viewpoint diversity that's missing from so many campuses?
3: I think there are innumerable ways that you can make contributions to DEI in ways that do not require you to classify your students based on their race or gender. I write, as I know Randall does, I I write my own uh, casebook for two of my classes. Uh, My students are able to download that for free. That is an access issue that allows people to... uh, feel more welcome and have more access to uh, law school education. And that's the kind of contribution that can be included. And that makes no distinction whatsoever based on anybody's race. If it so happens that there are no women in your field or there are very few people of a particular race uh, doing well at your school, I think you need to be asking yourself about that. And I don't think that uh, requiring people to do so is a way of driving out people on the basis of ideology. I think that's just getting people to do their jobs.
2: On the the question of that's just requiring people to do their jobs, of course we can uh, make jobs follow any particular agenda. We can define things in such a way— as to make our job, make the job description um, in alignment with compelled, mandated DEI statements, I guess my position is I don't think that this should be part of the job description. I think that actually we have a notion of what academics do and that our notion of what academics do ought not to include pledging allegiance, uh, to some sort of agenda, even an agenda that I like. And by the way, I should mention, I mean, I'm a person on the left. Let's not, let's not think that, you know, everybody who is against DEI statements are conservatives. I am not a conservative. I am a person on the left. And as a person on the left, as a person who embraces much of what animates the DEI project, I really um, am quite against this mandated requirement. Why? Because it poses a risk to freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of learning on our campuses. Those freedoms should be at the very top of what universities ought to be protecting.
4: Does your stance against DEI statements extend to DEI programming at these universities? I think
2: that the DEI regime has a big problem, and that big problem is the problem of coercion. The forces behind DEI, in American society, in in much of American society, they are on the margins— But in some parts of American society, they are very powerful, including in certain institutions of higher education. And where they have power, they do what people often do who have power, they overreach. And this the DEI's mandated statements are an aspect of that overreach.
1: Thanks very much for your question, uh, Sarah. And I now want to bring in Emily Yaffe, who is a journalist and senior editor at the Free Press. Emily, welcome to Open to Debate and come on in with your question, please.
0: Hi. Thank you, John. Here are some statements from a DEI initiative at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. There is no priority in medical education that is more important than addressing and eliminating racism and bias. And... Someone's lived experience of racism and bias is all we need to know about its impact on them, whether intended or not. Finally, leaders from the Association of American Medical Colleges recently proclaimed that DEI, quote, deserves just as much attention from learners and educators at every stage of their careers as the latest scientific breakthroughs. My question is, when DEI is declared central to a university's mission, on par or more important than the expansion and dissemination of knowledge, does a culture of mistrust and ill will and of reporting violation to the DEI authorities arise? Doesn't this undermine the very purpose of the university?
1: Okay, I want to point out, and I'm going to allow the question, but I want to point out that You did not address a mandate there, unless you're telling me that putting a signature under that statement is mandated. Nevertheless, Brian, if you'd like to to respond to the question, because this is certainly very much uh, the second stage of the conversation that's going on about all of this topic. So
3: there seems to be a difference of opinion here about what... DEI means in this kind of context. Sometimes from listening both to that question and to this debate in general, I'm picturing those signs you see outside the houses of certain liberal neighborhoods where they say, you know, we believe black lives matter and no human is illegal and women's rights are human's rights. And that what we're trying to do with DEI statements is get people to check all of those lines and say, yep, I believe in those things, too. I don't see that being what we're after or at least what we should be after. So, Emily, when you ask about putting DEI on par with the concern about finding knowledge and disseminating knowledge, I want to know, finding what knowledge? Knowledge about what? Disseminating it to whom? who are we teaching? Uh, Who are we allowing to be part of this research project? For a long time, it was a pretty limited audience and a pretty limited set of people doing the research. And so if Mount Sinai is saying, let's expand that, then I don't see that as problematic at all.
1: Thank you, Emily Offey, for, for joining us on Open to Debate. And next, I'd like to bring in Ryan Quinn. Ryan is a reporter at Inside Higher Ed who focuses on faculty issues. Ryan, the floor is yours. Thanks for joining us.
0: This may be a question for Professor Sochak, but how do you defend requiring prospective or current faculty
3: members to sign or write specifically DEI statements as part of hiring or promotion evaluations when there are so many other types of possibly valuable
0: statements that one could argue faculty members should also be required to make. For instance, why not require faculty members to sign or write statements pledging to support student mental health issues in certain ways, such as flexible grading and due dates? Why not require faculty members to sign or write statements pledging to respect students' religious beliefs in certain ways, such as not discussing atheism in a philosophy classroom? Why not require faculty members to sign or write statements saying certain things about the Israel... Palestine conflict? Or do you support requiring statements for all of these and more?
3: The first of those about mental health and possibly the second of those about religious belief would absolutely be good things to write about, uh, possible candidates to for discussion within a DEI statement. So I see that as encompassed. I guess I fall off when you talk about uh, a statement saying you won't discuss atheism within a philosophy class. Uh, I don't see that as a contribution to diversity, equity, and inclusion at all. But, of course, I would leave it to the disciplinary experts within that field to decide whether that's true. Uh, the The last of the example, a pledge not to talk about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, uh, seems... J- j- simply like a, a violation of academic freedom.
1: Okay, Ryan, thank you very much for your question. I want to ask one last question to each of you that is based on on some of your writing, Brian, that I found very interesting. So earlier in the program, you said it, it wouldn't make sense. Uh, it wouldn't make educational academic sense to require a um, a pledge to make America great again, a slogan such as that. But in some of your writing, you suggested that actually a pledge to support capitalism would make sense in the context of a business school. And I found that very interesting because that comes very close to your argument about the the subject matter and the pledge of principles being very, very intertwined. And I just wanted to ask you to build a little bit on that case and then to ask uh, Professor Kennedy his response to it.
3: Sure. Thanks, John. It's not within the context of a business school. It's in the context of hiring somebody to run the entrepreneurship program at the business school. I'm sorry. Thanks for the specification. No, not at all. So in the same way that when Maya Randall's Law School hires the director of our asylum clinic, I think... Uh, views on asylum become fair game in a way that they are absolutely not in our general hiring within the law school, much less within the chemistry department or anywhere else in the university. So that's that's to say that what counts as viewpoint discriminatory under the First Amendment really comes down to job or position relevance, that we judge people's opinions all the time when we hire. That's what peer review is. But it has to be on the basis of things that are relevant to the job. And that's where I see Randall and I disagreeing just about what kinds of contributions really are relevant to certain jobs.
2: So we're going to ask that uh, people who are going to be professors, let's say, at a business school, sign a pledge that uh, you are in favor of uh, capitalism as it is currently practiced in the United States— Let's imagine that we're uh, hiring somebody for a position in a law school. Maybe you're going to teach contracts. Maybe you're going to teach torts. But, oh, but we want to know about where you stand with respect to immigration. We could go on and on and on with all sorts of questions. Where are you, wh- where do you stand with respect to abortion? I know that um, uh, this position is a position for uh, a physics instructor, but we want to know where you stand with respect to abortion. You can see how this would play out and again, think about how are you going to make America great again? And by the way, this is this is not some sort of hypothetical coming from an, an overheated imagination. This is already happening. It's already the case that in some jurisdictions that are conservative, there are already lawmakers in place who were saying, no, we shouldn't require people to um, uh, sign on to DEI. No, we should require people to sign on to and then fill in the blank of what they want. This whole idea of making scholars pledge allegiance is a bad idea, and it is going to haunt us. We need to get rid of it.
3: I— Of course, agree and thought I had just said that somebody shouldn't be asked about immigration when they're being hired generally within the law school, much less the chemistry department. Instead, it's not that we should ask somebody to pledge fealty to something, but we should certainly be able to ask, what have you done uh, in the realm of asylum in helping asylum seekers if we're hiring a director of our asylum clinic? That's the point that I was making in the part of the article that you were uh, asking me about, John.
1: Okay, so I would uh, like to thank you both for the conversation to this point and point out that we are now moving on to our closing round. And the closing round is comprised of closing statements from each of you in turn. Uh, Randall, you answered yes again to the question, are DEI mandates for university faculty a bad idea? You said you've been arguing yes, and this is your last chance to make the point. So one
2: more time, why are you a yes? I'm a yes because of um, actually what you've heard over the past few minutes. Uh, at this point, I'm willing to say res ipsa Uh, uh the, the thing speaks for itself. My counterpart, whom I respect, uh, has actually conceded on any number of times now that the mandated uh, uh, diversity statements— Uh, can be used wrongly, have been used wrongly. I mean, at this point, frankly, I say, well, you know, I I don't need to actually push my argument. My counterpart has made my argument for me. I think that we're dealing with something that uh, is dangerous. Does it have to be dangerous, you know, each and every time it's used? No, a lot of dangerous things aren't uh, dangerous each and every time they're used but does it pose enough of a risk for us to say for the purposes of safety academic safety for academic freedom safety for teaching safety for learning on our campuses for the purpose of safety in that context should we get rid of these forced compelled dei statements I say imperatively, yes, we ought to get rid of these things uh, and go on with the business that uh, higher education uh, ought to pursue. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Randall. And that turns it over to you, Brian. You have the final word here, again, to tell us why you're answering no to the question of whether or not DEI mandates for university faculties
3: are a bad idea.
1: You're a no. One more time, why?
3: Thanks, John. And thank you, Randall. So earlier this year, I was giving a talk about DEI statements at a big public research university, and an older faculty member came up to me afterwards mostly just to tell me why I was completely wrong. Uh, He was a scientist, and he didn't think that DEI really had anything to do with science at all. Uh, He thought, like Randall does, that DEI is extraneous to merit. It's just not part of what it means to be a good science professor. This professor was expressing frustration with the direction his university had gone during his career. And at one point he said to me, I can't even call on my students anymore because they're all from Asia and I don't know how to pronounce their names. Now, I was taken aback by this, but what I actually said to him in response was, gosh, you've got the makings of a just terrific DEI statement right there. Here's what you'd do. You'd start by identifying a need that you've found in your department. Professors there are calling on students less because the demographics of your faculty are diverging from that of your students. and As a result, professors are start feeling uncomfortable that they're going to get names wrong. So what did you do about it? Well, maybe you found technology that allows students to record themselves saying their names. Maybe you gave them a survey before class where they could write their names phonetically You start learning students' names so that you can call on them. Students feel more included. A more diverse set of students are now uh, thriving within your science department. Notice, doing this would not have required the professor to treat any of his students differently because of their race. Moreover, to Randall's point throughout this debate, nowhere in that statement would this professor be required to pledge allegiance to anything at all. He wouldn't have to state a single belief about diversity. What he would have described was a DEI-related way that he made his teaching better. That's the kind of thing that we're after, or at least that's the kind of thing I think we should be after.
1: Thank you very much, Brian Socek And that wraps up this debate. And I want to thank our debaters, Randall and Brian, for approaching this debate uh, with mutual respect and civility and for bringing thoughtful disagreement to the table, in short, for being open to debate. I also want to thank our journalists who helped move things along, Emily Offey, Ryan Quinn and Sarah Esker. And to all of you listening and tuning in, I want to thank you for joining us. As a nonprofit, our work at Open to Debate to combat extreme polarization through civil, respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation and by supporters of Open to Debate. Open to Debate is also made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clay Connor is CEO. Leah Mathow is our chief content officer. Alexis Pangrazi and Marlette Sandoval are our editorial producers. Gabriella Mayer is our editorial and research manager. Andrew Lipson is head of production production. Max Fulton is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore, our engineer. Gabrielle Janicelli, our social media and digital platforms coordinator. Raven Baker is events and operations manager. Rachel Kemp is our chief of staff. Our theme music is by Alex Clement. And I'm your host, John Donvan, for Open to Debate. We'll see you next time.